Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and this is Your Strata Property. Kat Carmichael has been serving the community association profession in the United States for three decades, both as a management company executive and as a financial services professional. As the CEO at Strategy 123, Kat is involved in mergers and acquisitions, succession planning, and strategic processes to improve efficiency. Serving on the Board of Trustees of the Community Associations Institute for three years, Kat is now the President for the 2019 year. Kat is a graduate of the University of California, Irvine, and an Honours graduate of Pacific Coast Banking School, where she earned recognition for her thesis, Addressing the Agency Dilemma When Banking for Property Management Companies. Today, I am delighted to welcome Kat Carmichael. Welcome, Kat. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's great to be back with you. I had the privilege of spending some time with your executives at the Strata Community Association Conference and had a wonderful time meeting with and collaborating with um, with the folks from, from Australia and New Zealand. It was wonderful. So I'm glad to be back. Yes, I know that you attended our SCA National Conference in New Zealand earlier this year and that you were also in Sydney speaking to business leaders. And I was really disappointed to have missed you, but I was very lucky to be introduced to you by a mutual friend and colleague, and we have snapped you up for the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. I'll share a lot of the same ideas that we um, we shared when we were together. Yes, I heard so much about your presentation. Uh, you definitely made an impact. Thank you. Now, I've already mentioned the term community associations in your introduction there, and I just want to be clear with our listeners that we are indeed talking about your version of strata and body corporates. Uh, We do use the term community associations uh, here in New South Wales, in Australia where I am, but um, community association seems to be the term that you use in the US. Am I right about that? That's exactly right. And although I will do my best, I think that some of my long-term training will revert me back to some of the vernacular that I'm familiar with, but I will do my best to make sure that it makes sense to your listeners as well. No problem at all. We like learning new terms. We love our acronyms as well in this sector here, so we can learn some new ones. It's good. Perfect. (laughs) Kat, what do you love most about working in the community association sector? Well, it's been a long time. And the thing that I think I like the most about it is really having a direct positive impact on a person's experience in their own home and in their own community. It's rare that you have a profession that brings you that intimately close to someone else's experience. And having the opportunity to work with really little democracies within a city is influential enough to make an impact significant. Mm. It's so interesting that you say that because I often get asked that question, why are you a strata lawyer? And I say, because I can bring the knowledge and the skills that I have as a lawyer and impact people right where they live and their everyday experience of their homes, of their investments, of their communities. And I agree with you. I think that's rare as a professional that you can have that kind of direct personal impact. So good to hear you say that. I know you work with 
management companies, property management companies, making them better places to run, to operate, to work in. What do you say makes a company in this area, the community associations area, whether they're property management or some other service provider, what makes them successful? And I'm here, I've got my air quotes, success. What does that mean to the companies that you work with? Well, it really dovetails back to what we spoke about a second ago. You know, if your company is in a position where the results of your work make someone else's lives better, then you're a successful company. And that's true whether you're a business partner who provides service to a community association or whether you're a management company. It really is. You truly are the governor of how the services are going to be delivered. And if you come away from doing your work and someone else is better off, then you're a success. There's other financial metrics, of course, that deem you a success. There's growth, there's margins, there's profitability, those types of things. But at the core of it, if we're not satisfying our customers and improving their lives experience, we haven't really succeeded. So you have to have a delicate balance between chasing the bottom line and delivering a great outcome for the residents who you're serving. Mm. And the companies that you're working with, how are they measuring that or how are you teaching them to measure that? How do you know the impact that you're having on the customers that you're serving? Well, that's a conversation that's changing a lot because people used to just measure themselves on client retention or client growth, those types of things. And now they're asking much more thoughtful questions. And the most important question they ask now is, would you tell your friend or relative to live in a community that I manage? That's a big measurement. And if you can get a client to agree that they would, then you know that you've been successful. That's completely different than a task-oriented approach to success, whether we've got letters out on time or whether we have issued work orders on time. Those are all understood features of what a community manager does, but this is a service profession. They should do those things. Mm -hmm. It's elevated to the next level where people really see the outcome from the interaction that they have with their manager and the business partners who serve the associations that makes a successful company. Mm. And I think those service level task oriented things, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I think we are seeing those become more automated. We're seeing less value placed on those things by clients and customers and the companies that have always been good at doing those things, others are catching up. You know, everybody's kind of good at doing those things. So I agree with you that this point of difference uh, has to be what is happening on the personal level and the things that, you know, the computers can't do, the machines can't do, we can't automate. How is it that I personally am having an impact on the clients that I'm working with and working for? And that is such a great question to be asking. Would you recommend that your friends or your family live in a community that I manage? You're going to get so much gold out of the answer to that question. I completely agree with you. And you're right. Um, Not only is automation the key to the future of community management, we're going to talk a lot more about that because I feel very strongly that that's the core of how we're going to survive as we go forward. But it's hard to find people to, to take those jobs. You know, those types of jobs that can be done by automation or by program are tough to hire for. They're tough to retain for. But that's not really the heart of what makes a manager valuable. The heart of what makes a manager valuable is what he or she knows about helping the community be better. So that's the conversation. That's how managers must elevate themselves and insist that that's their perception. The perception that their client should have is one of trusted advisor and not someone who is just expected to conduct and complete tasks. Mm -hmm. 
And how do you help your clients to have this conversation with their clients? Is this something that they're doing on a regular basis? Say there's an annual get together where they talk to clients. Do they send out surveys? I've got lots of managers listening and other service providers to this podcast, and I know they'll be looking for that tool. How best do I have that conversation and ask that question of my clients? Well, it starts at the very first interview. When a community manager is considering a new client or a new prospect, the expectation should be set right then. And the manager should ask, what is it that you want your community to be known for? What is it that you like about living here? Are you a elite community? Are you a restricted community? Are you a permissive community? Are you family oriented? And then as soon as the client tells you what it is that they want their community to be like and how they want to be perceived, then the manager can respond accordingly. And as you move on from contract year to contract year, it's incumbent upon the manager to remind the client what they heard them say they wanted to be about. The manager is simply doing what they need to do to fulfill what the board said they want their community to be like. And if you say very, very powerful words, like, I heard you say that you want your community to be like this, then the board has one chance to say, no, we don't want to be like that anymore, or yes, we do. Once they say, yes, we do, then you've got your marching orders. Then the rules and the roles are understood between the manager and the board. And it's really a function of getting them to say what it is and how they perceive themselves. Then you repeat their words back to themselves, which are the most powerful sales tool any person can possibly have, Mm -hmm. and um, respond to what they agree that the rules of their community are going to be like. Yes. And in that way, you are setting expectations too, aren't you? And I think that's something that too often we forget to do, we don't do, and it blows up down the track because the client thinks you're there to do one thing and you think you're there to do another. That's exactly right. And that's why reinforcing your message over and over is vitally important. It's especially important after you've had an annual election and someone new comes to the board, bring them up to speed on what their colleagues have said that they expect the manager to do for them. This is also how you avoid the dreaded micromanagement because once the board sets its policy on how they want you to govern them, they don't get to tell you exactly how to get there. You just get there. Mm. And I can give you an example of a community that I managed that set parameters like that for me. We'll talk a little bit more about them, I'm hopeful. But at their annual meeting, they pointed to a woman who was in the kitchen and they said, who's that? And I said, well, it's your caterer. Because in my mind, they needed a caterer for their annual meeting to have some snacks and some cheese and wine and things like that. And they went, okay, because they had told me, make our place great. Make it a wonderful place to be. And my interpretation of that was bring a caterer to the annual meeting. And they never second-guessed my judgment. It was great. Love it. Now, I just want to get a concept here, Kat, of how big these communities are and for our audience to get a concept of how big these communities are because they are on a scale that I think here in Australia we find it hard to wrap our heads around. Who are you working with? How, how big are they? How many lots are under management? How many people are we talking about in a community? Well, you're right. That is a significant difference. Um, we offer management services from, from the very small community. For us, a very, very small community would be 10 to 20 units. But we have communities that have hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands yep. of homeowners within the communities. And truly, in that case, what I said earlier about it being a little democracy truly is the case. You know, These are cities within cities. Mm. And it's almost like the community manager becomes a city manager and has all the politics and all the other types of demands on her that any other city manager would have. But we've got management companies in the U.S. that have hundreds of thousands of units. 
you know, mm. 200,000, 300,000, gosh, hundreds of thousands of units, mm. nine to 10,000 homeowners associations under management. An average management company in America probably has about 100 associations and about 10,000 units. That's pretty common. That's the average. Yes. <laughs> wow. That is my What's your average? Oh, gosh. What's our average? Our average would probably be 20 lot buildings. 20 is probably around about the average. There'd be some data on that that I can look up and, and link to. But we don't have very many large-scale communities like you do in terms of right. having many different subsidiaries within the same community. We do have them, but they are sort of a handful compared to our standalone strata buildings, which our most common size would be about 20 to 30 lots. And so we would have our strata managers, as we call them, would manage a portfolio of maybe anywhere between 50 to 100 of these standalone communities, smaller communities. So being in a, a manager who then steps into a community, what we'd call a community association, which are these larger scale communities with lots of different subsidiaries and you've got your country club and you've got your golf course and you've got your yes. restaurants, that's a whole new ball game. And I think talking about the vision for the community at that top level, understanding how important that is and being able to have that kind of a discussion. I don't think our managers are trained for that, prepared for that, practiced at that. That's a real new concept to us, but an important one. It's very important for the manager's job enjoyment as well, you know, for them to sort of create the partnership early on with their client to establish themselves as really this leader to help the board achieve its outcomes. You know, the board wants the community to be the way they want it to be. And they generally don't think that way. They generally are not strategic thinkers when it comes to a brand. What do people want our neighborhood to be like? Why are people going to choose to buy here rather than buy in a neighboring community that has similar amenities? And it's all about the vibe that they create by, by articulating it and saying how they want to be. Yep. I love it. And even in our smaller buildings, say we have a managers taking on a new building and it's about that 20 to 30 lot size. I imagine that you'd recommend they should still be having these conversations about, yes, what do we want our community to look like? But also, you know, over the next 12 months, what are the projects that we want to achieve? What is it that is urgent for you right now? What is your wish list? Do you have those kind of conversations with the smaller communities and sort of drill down into that nitty gritty and then develop a plan for, say, the next year? That's the only way to keep them healthy. You're 100% correct about that. If they haven't had a professional capital reserve plan done, or if they haven't established their own reserve plan, then it's up to the community manager really to, to use their judgment and experience to help the board understand what lies ahead. And once they, lie, they understand what lies ahead, then they have to help them accomplish that. A lot of times, it's not that they don't want to manage the property in a particular way, so they just don't have the funding. So in the U.S., well, I know in Australia as well, we offer bank loans. There's also, you know, the most unpopular way to fund a project, which is a special assessment. So if a board knows what it needs to do, the manager will create the right plan. It's up to the board to adopt it, which is part of where the conflict often comes between managers and boards mm. because the board wants to potentially keep the assessments artificially low, the levies artificially yes. low. Um, but the manager always knows what is necessary because he or she has the knowledge of the market, what purchasing power they might have, and truly what it is that will take the board to get the desired results that they need. Mm. And I think too often that managers might be winning the contract, for example, and 
and kind of forgetting about that next step, which is this building has chosen me. I'm going to be the strata manager for the next uh, anywhere between 12 months and three years. In New South Wales, we have three-year capped terms and having a little celebration about that. And yeah, it's really excited to, I'm excited to work with you. I'm really looking forward to it. And then kind of leaving that conversation and not saying, okay, well now we've got some work to do. You don't have an up-to-date capital works fund plan. You tell me you want to do A, B and C, but your levies are just not high enough. Having those difficult conversations when you're coming off a high of, oh, they love me. They want to pay me. They're going to hire me. Stepping back and saying, all right, well, this is the work we have to do and not being scared to have that conversation. You're absolutely right. And first of all, bravo for having three-year contracts. I would love it if those were legal in the U.S. Um, very few governing documents permit them to contract for longer than a year. But truly, it takes that long you yes. know, for a manager to get good report and to create a good plan and to get the assessment set properly. So I envy you for having that. That's a wonderful thing. But you're quite correct. If the manager right off, right off the bat says, you know, will you allow me to push as much technology to you as I possibly can? Because if you think about the things that you can automate, your point earlier was absolutely correct. If you think about the things you can automate, what is the manager left to do? What's left for them to do is have these high-level strategic conversations with their board. Yeah, That's what a manager should be doing. And that's what makes their job much more rewarding. Turns into a, It's a perfect way for the community to get healthy and to get what it needs and the manager to have a job that rewards them for their unique talent and experience. Yes. So Kat, have you got a story for us about a community or a client that you have helped to uh, reach these levels of success? I do actually. Um, it was one of, I'm very lucky to have had a bifurcated career in community association living. I have been a community manager for half my career and then a business professional for the other half of my career. So I get to speak from both sides of that experience. I had a community association in the city of Irvine, California. The board president was a land developer who had a PhD in psychology. Okay. So if you think about the characteristics of the perfect community board president, it was him. And he would govern the association in a very thoughtful, psychological way, but with an eye towards great maintenance and great structure. So he said to me, the board every year would say three things to me. The first thing they would say is it is your job as our COO to manage our community in the highest and best condition. You must budget accordingly and we don't negotiate with homeowners. That was it. Okay. Those were my instructions. And that was what I had to do to achieve those three outcomes that they wanted. It was extremely successful. Mm -hmm. They had a beautiful community. They had full committee participation. They had terrific home values. They had great consistency, quarterly meetings that were short. You know, it speaks perfectly to your article about the one thing. Uh -huh. you know, the one thing that makes somebody a community great is to have a properly functioning strata committee. Mm -hmm. And that's what this was. It's a perfect illustration of why that works. For me, it shaped how I was always going to manage going forward. And it becomes part of what I teach now because I know it can be done. And I couldn't have done it if they hadn't kind of led me there and shown me that it works beautifully for the manager and for the community. Tell me this. What does we don't negotiate with homeowners mean? That means that anything that needed to be done from the homeowner standpoint, like waiving a late fee, dealing with a violation, extending a payment plan, all those types of things were up to me as their professional manager to handle. I didn't make architectural decisions. That's something that is subjective and should be done by the community committee. But 
anything else that the homeowner needed to have some discretion done, they delegated to me. Yes. So they weren't, they no doubt had given you instructions about how that should be dealt with, but they weren't then burdened with the everyday minutiae, if you like, of dealing, because they couldn't possibly, the size of these communities, dealing with these inquiries of homeowners and, you know, wanting to bend the rules or make an exception. That's right, because really what they wanted was the outcome, right? They wanted a violation-free community, and that was up to me to deliver that for them. And I had to deliver it not under the structure of a rules enforcement policy that was unbreakable, under the structure of the outcome. So if someone has a boat parked in their driveway, how do I get the boat out of their driveway? It wasn't by sending a letter and then 30 days later bringing them to a hearing and finding them. It was figuring out what their need of their boat was, why was it there, was their local storage. And they paid for this, though. I mean, this was a community that paid a very high management fee because that's the kind of service they wanted and that's how they wanted their homeowners to be treated. Mm. So it was all about the outcome much less than the issue. Or the process. Yes. Okay, I like it. Moving to property management companies and other service providers in the sector, what would you say their biggest problems are, if you can? I know that's a general question, but if you can, what are the the big problems these companies are facing when they're working with community associations? Actually, it's it's a great question. And these are problems that not only they have with working with associations, but problems they have with their companies. CAI has a CEO conference every year. And last year in 2018, we asked the floor, you know, what are your primary challenges? And they said, my number one challenge is I can't make my margins make sense. The second challenge they said was I'm being commoditized. I'm being commoditized by ill-qualified competitors and people who buy our services, and I can't find new talent. And that to me was incredibly telling. And I have repeated that list to management company executives in the 10 months since that meeting happened, and they have all agreed. And this was the list I took to the strata managers when I spoke with them in Sydney in June, and they agreed that the very same pressures are happening to them. So we have to solve this. Yes, It's up to us to get the, a solution to this, or who's going to work in this business? We have to fix it. So... I do believe strongly that the solution is not only in technology to automate routine processes and take tasks that can be done by uh, programmatically out of the hands of the community management company and put them where they belong in the hands of the tech experts, but it's also in a function of empowerment. Management companies, executives, and managers need to make sure that they're empowered to deliver the outcomes that their clients want. Mm -hmm. If you're empowered like I was with this community association, it is a really fun job. And people are not going to be afraid to join strata management as a career. They're going to be attracted to it because of all the positive, rewarding things that it, it can do for a career and the positive things you can do for people who you serve. Mm. And it does start with understanding what those outcomes are so that you can deliver them. I guess. That's exactly right. So if you start by asking the customer, what do you want your community to be like? They stress what the outcome is. You design the plan to get them to their outcome. Mm, I like it. So what is the, the next step or uh, I suppose the first step, the quick win that these companies can take to get on that path to improving outcomes, to being a better company, happier themselves, happier employees, happier customers? Yes. Well, the number one thing I'd like to recommend that they do is empower their people. You know, managers and sports staff and staff accountants are all very professional, well-trained people who have much more ability to handle 
client needs than perhaps they're given credit for. So if your staff isn't already empowered, make sure that you know that they know that you trust them, you trust that they've been trained, and you trust that they're going to make good decisions. They may not be 100% right all the time, but most of the time they're going to be thoughtful about the decisions that they make. So empower them for sure. The second thing is give your customers single call resolution. Whatever you need to do with your staff to make sure your customers call in no more than once to get their questions answered or their needs met, strive for single call resolution. If the homeowner can self-serve through technology, using a homeowner portal, ask questions, anything like that, do that because they want to be one and done. Mm. You know, if you think about the things we can do now with technology, you know, I could book a flight to come see you in less than five minutes, and yet I can't get a late fee waived by a manager who knows darn well what the policy is and what the community should be like. Mm. That's where the disconnect is. And that's why I feel strongly that empowering your people so that their customers can experience single call resolution is the single best thing they could do next. And the empowerment, is that about having the conversation that we trust you, we have these processes in place and we want you to follow them and make independent decisions. Is that just you tell your employees and your team that? How does the empowerment work? Well, yes, you do have to tell them that you trust them, you've trained them, and that you're right there if they have a question about anything that they need to do. But it's also telling the client right off the bat. You know, the person who sells the management contract often isn't the community manager. Yes. But they have to be presented in a light where the client is expecting them to be equally competent as the person who sells them the management contract. So getting the client to understand right off the bat, my entire team is talented and empowered to take care of what you said you have needed to have the outcome that you desire. Then you tell the team, they're going to be a little timid, but if you don't empower them and push them back on their own, they'll continue to knock at your door when they don't need to. Often I've had managers who reported to me who will ask me questions because it's easy. They can come straight to me and get an answer. And I get rewarded. I get excited by helping them. But that doesn't help them become better. So managers have to insist that they trust the level of training and competency of their own staff. Good point. Kat, I'm very excited to ask you this question. What books have had the greatest impact on you and why? You know what? It's not a business book. I don't know that it's going to be that. doesn't have to be. It's good. (laughs) Well, my my favorite book, I read it when I was 20. It was The Dragons of Eden by Carl Sagan. Okay. That book changed everything about how I view the universe. Wow. And it became sort of a baseline for me and how I how I saw the world. And I was I was actually one of those people who cried when he died. Mm. He was a, a total, um, someone I admired greatly as a thinker and um, someone who finally helped me understand how things were to work in the universe. What's your favorite book? Oh, gosh. I can't choose one favorite book, honestly. I have a whole shelf over here, which you can't see off the screen here. In my study, I have all of my what you call business books and personal development books. Um, There is a book I'm staring at right now, which is Essentialism by Greg McEwan. Uh, And I don't know if you have come across him before, but it's about when things are going well, say, in your business and in your life, and you have all of a sudden you have more opportunities than you could ever imagine. And you've got lots and lots coming at you. Um, It's very, and this is a very modern problem. It's very hard to remember why you do what you do, what it is that you want, what your vision is. And he talks about going back 
to identify, it's kind of what you're talking about with your clients. What is the outcome that you want? What is it that you want to achieve? And then these are the only things that you have to do to get there and forget about everything else and focus on the essential. So that's one of the recent ones that I've read that I've really enjoyed. I need that book right now. Yeah. Okay. I'll flick you the details. I just executed a contract with someone today and I thought, is that really where I want my, my business pivoted from the time I started it last year into this sort of separate line? And it's super successful, the separate line. But I asked myself that very question. I could have used his words of wisdom. All right. Now, Kat, how do our listeners find out more about you? And is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? The thing that I want to add is if people could change, really to summarize, to change the way you look at managing community associations from a series of tasks to achieving outcomes. That's the primary paradigm shift that I think will make not only employees' jobs more enjoyable, committee members' jobs will be more enjoyable, and the benefits of living in a strata will be much more apparent because we'll all be working towards the same outcome. Mm. That's the primary thing I just want to reemphasize. It's doable. I know it seems overwhelming. People can get really encouraged by these words, and then they go back to their desk, and they've got 55 emails, and, like, and they forget. It starts with what? I recommend that people find their favorite client, have a conversation with that person first. You'll get positively rewarded because they'll buy in too. They'll be like, great, we don't have to look at this stuff anymore. You're going to just handle it. Fabulous. So that's my hope is that people will, in fact, at least start with the first step in getting your communities to tell you how they want to be perceived. Anyone who wants to contact me can contact me through my website. It's strategy-123.com. There's a chat feature or they can email me, cat at strategy-123.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, Kat. I cannot wait to meet you in person, whether that is in Australia or maybe that's over in the US. Maybe that's going to be in Vegas in January. I don't know. I don't know. No promises Uh, here. I will be in Vegas in January. Are you coming? (laughs) Oh, I would love to. I would love to. So I'm definitely not saying no. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Well, our um, national conference is also in Vegas in May. In May, yeah. And I know a few Australian managers, I think, went over to your CAI conference this year, I believe. So, And I very jealously was looking at their LinkedIn posts and thinking, yeah, let's put it on the agenda. You know, we've started something really great. Um, The collaboration between Australia and the U.S. has helped us all tremendously. I can tell you when I call on management companies here, I tell them some of the cool things you're doing. Why is it your managers can handle 40 properties? Well, your documents are somewhat different. Sizes are different, but your technology is different in a lot of ways. And your ideas have really sparked a great conversation here in the U.S. about how we can do better as well. Oh, that is so good to hear. Because we're we're always, uh, I know I am looking to the US and thinking that's our future. That's uh, these large scale communities and the way that you manage and the professionalism that you exhibit. I see that definitely in our future. So it's nice to hear that some of what we're doing now is in your future. It absolutely is. I'm really honored to have been your guest, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me and for talking with me tonight. Thank you so much, Kat. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. 
How can Amanda help you today? 